Okay, uh, we pick up uh, today's daf is Memzayin. We pick up on Memvav Bet. We're about twenty lines from the bottom. Tanarabanan Harav Talmid. We're talking about the mitzvah of Levaya of accompanying somebody out of the city, somebody who is visiting, um, based on the uh, whole uh, declaration of the of the uh, Sanhedrin by the Egla Rufa that or the elders of the city that our hands did not spill this blood, meaning uh, we would, were not negligent of accompanying him out of the city, which is part of the larger discussion of things that have to be said in Hebrew. Okay, so. Even if somebody's student is visiting them, they have an obligation to accompany the student out of the city. And how far is that? Ad ibura shel ir, until the pregnancy of the city, meaning until the outer houses of the city. And there's a whole way of measuring this for Tchum Shabbos, which is 2,000 amas from the last house. And the last house is even a little house that's within about 100 feet or so from you know, the edges of the normal building up of the houses. So until the last house of the city. Adi bua shel ir. Chaver lechaver. If it's if it's somebody who's on your equal level, ad chum shabbos until two thousand. And the chum shabbos two thousand amos beyond that, about three about a kilometer. Ad chum shabbos. And um, another one continues. Talmud uh, Rav, if a Talmud is uh, accompanying a, his his Rebbe, so obviously he has a you know he owes him a, a whole service of of Kavod Rav. So Elo Shir, then you have no limit. You have to accompany him forever, but not really forever because it's hilarious. Kamara, right after it says Elo Shir, it says okay Elo um, Shir the Kama. So how much really is it? Okay, there's got to be some limit. Parsa Parsa is four meal, which is like four kilometers. All right, so three times more than the Tchum Shabbos. Um, and that limit of a Parsa, you know, four kilometers, is only by your Rebbe, who's not your, like, your main Rebbe. Of a Rabbi Muvak, but your Rebbe, your Rebbe Muvak, Sholish Parsos, three times that. Twelve kilometers, that's a pretty significant amount. What is that, like about uh, seven miles or something? Okay. Rav Kahana Avil Rav Shimi Barashi. Rav Kahana accompanied Rav Shimi Barashi. Bipum Nahara Beit Tinisa. From Pum Nahara, which was a city to Beit Tinisa, to Bavel, this place where there was a um, a lot of uh, uh, palm trees in Bavel. It was a, it was, it was a particular location. Kimatu Asam, when they got to this place, you know, ah, these like apparently was some very, uh, you know, distinctive site and um, this big uh, collection of palm trees. And he said, oh, this is what people say that they, these uh, palm trees were from above. These were all goes all the way back to the time of Adam Arishon. So you responded, you know what? By mentioning Adam Arishon, you reminded me of a nice Torah point. Um, what's meant by the verse? A man that a person never passed through and, a, and an Adam never dwelt there. If nobody passed through it, why does the end of the verse have to say nobody settled? Of course nobody settled. Nobody passed through it. You know, it's a classic sort of way of Hebrew poetry operates. Sometimes it sort of like goes, you know, anticlimactic. Um, it says the thing that was already obvious in the first one. But anyway, but that's the question being asked here. Um, so it's going to read the word Adam literally. A man that nobody passed through, and Adam was not Yashav Sham, did not decree that that would be an area that would be settled. Only if Adam had decreed which areas of the globe would be settled, those are the ones that eventually were settled. So this is sort of sharing with us how, you know, you accompany, uh, you know, uh, going, a Rav and a Talmud, a Talmud and a Rav, and that ultimately um, it leads to pa- even idle sort of talk. 
I guess eventually leads to some degree of Torah that gets shared between them. Rav Mordechai Avi Ravashi Mi Hagronia, Rav Mordechai comes Rav Avi Ashia from Hagronia, the Abbe Mi Hagronia to Hagronia of Abbe Kifa until place Bay Kifa. Yamile Abbe Dura and something until this other place Bay Dura. I'm Rabbi Yehudim Shem Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yehudim said in the name of Rabbi Meir. Koshein Malavu Mitlaveh. Anybody who does not accompany or does not is not accompanied, kiilu shofech tamim is as if they spilled blood. So the mitlaveh is pretty interesting because you know presumably you're the one who's being accompanied. You want it. Maybe it means I you refuse the accompaniment. Okay, you you know you're also responsible if you're the one refusing. But okay, if you and this ties clearly back to um, the whole story of what do you call it of um, of you know the egla rufa where we see that if you're not accompanying somebody, it could lead to them f- uh, feeling vulnerable, being seen is vulnerable, open to attack, and so on. But now we're going to tie it into another story in the Tanakh. Kilu shofech tamim. Sheumali livu anche Yericho leAlisha. Had the people of, uh, if only the people of Yericho had accompanied Elisha, lo gira dubim litinokos. He would not have uh, sicked the the uh, the the, uh, um, the bears on the young kids. Shenemar, as the verse says, Vayal Misham Beit El, Elisha was going from Yericho to Beit El, Vuhu Allah Baderech, and he was going on his way, and he was all alone. And what happened because he was all alone? And these, uh, you know, young uh, children came out of the city, um, or young men, we'll see about that in a minute, Vit Kalsubo, and they, uh, you know, and they uh, cursed him out. Get out of here, you baldy, get out of here, baldy. So Amulo, so now what is this Kerech? Why are they calling him baldy? And why were they anyway cursing him? So, get out of here that you have like stripped the place. Because the story was that he went to Yericho and they told the people, told them that there, the water was bitter and he uh, and he did a miracle and the water became sweet. And uh, these, uh, again, this is now being, that's in the Tanakh and now being filled in by the Gemara. You know, these uh, young men, they would make money by selling good water to the people of the city. So um, they were basically saying, you have stripped this place of our livelihood because you have now improved the water of the city. Um, okay, my um, Arim Ketanim. So now, what is meant from Na'arim Ketanim? Because in Na'ar is like a young man. Ketanim is like a kid. So I'm Rebbe Liazor. Shemenu Arim in a mitzvot. Ketanim shayu mekatnei muna. So they're called Na'arim, young men, because from the, they were like emptied from mitzvot. They were people of no, you know, no serious commitment to mitzvot, which is why they, you know, were uh, mistreated the Navi this way. And Ketanim that they were of little faith. Ye of little faith because they were. Uh, just because now they wouldn't be able to make money by selling good water, um, you know, they should have had faith in God. That God would have found another way for them to, to, you know, to have been provided for. Okay, so anyway, the point is that here you see, and this is why I probably said earlier, because it wasn't Elisha that himself was da- endangered. Because you know, he it wasn't like it was like he died. Uh, it, the kids died because he got angry at them and he sick the kids on them. So both the people in Yericho didn't accompany him, and he who did not maybe insist on accompaniment or agree to it or whatever, both of them were were held responsible for what resulted that because of his vulnerability he was attacked, but that ultimately resulted in him attacking them, not verbally, but through these uh, bears, and then um, and then they were killed. We'll see, 42 of them were killed of these young men. Okay. And the Gemara is holding, um, you know, him and the people of Yericho uh, liable for that, responsible for that. Tana. Na'arim hayu, they were young men, again, dealing with the Na'arim and the Ketanim, but they treated themselves like, you know, like like, like kids, they were acting like 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 children. That they were like mocking the navi. 
Okay. You're bothered by the word ne'arim and ketanim. I have another explanation for the word ne'arim. Maybe they're called ne'arim because they came, there's a place that would, that would give, that that could be their name. Why? There's a place called ne'arim, and that's why they're ne'arim, people from ne'ar, not that they were young men. Um, so the Gemara says, uh, I'm sorry, I skipped a line, I'll say, Mekoma, Miloxi does not written, the Aram Yatsu Gududim, the Yashvu Meret Yisrael, the Arak Tana, and so Aram took captive from, um, from the land of Israel, a young lass, Na'ara, but Na'ara again is a young woman, a Ketana is a uh, child, so the Kajala, Na'ara, U Ketana, how can it be both? Same like the question here. Um, so the Amara Pedas, Ketana Dimin Urin. No, it was a young child from a place called Ne'urin. Ara means from this place. So maybe here too, they were from this place. And it doesn't mean they were young men. No. So the says, Hasam lo mefarish mekoma. There you can say Ara means from the place of Ne'urin because it doesn't say where she came from. Hacham mefarish mekoma. Here it says their place. It says that they were from Yericho. Okay. Going, continuing with this story with Elisha and the uh, children. And he turned behind him to see these children mocking him. And he saw them. And he cursed them. In God's name. What is meant? He just he looked at them. Like he looked. What do you mean he looked? Um, just he saw them. So, it just, no, literally, it doesn't mean anything. It means he looked. I mean, we'll see how that contrasts to other explanations. When the rabbis give like their evil eye, you know, they put their eye against somebody that they're mad at and they want him to be punished. He'll either die or become poor. So yes, it means a look, but a look from this navi is going to bring with it the disaster that it brought. Um, no. So now we're going to have other reads which are going to try to somewhat mitigate um, how bad it was what Elisha did. I mean, it's still bad, um, but the Gemara is trying to sort of say, you know, maybe to some degree we can make our peace with this because, you know, it's sort of like Moshe, he, you know, it says, he saw that no righteous person would come from this mitzri, but that means he was literally in the process of maybe killing, you know, a Hebrew. Anyway, here it says he saw that, you know, that they were all born in sin. All of them, their mothers had become impregnated with them on Yom Kippur, meaning that their mothers had sex on Yom Kippur. Of course, why that means that they deserve to die is not so clear. Okay, so Yitzchak is now going to try to do it to make it even more, a little bit, make our peace with why they died. He saw that they had their hair cut in a particular type of a haircut, which was a way like, was like, like the Amorites, like the people of the, you know, of, of the Canaanites who lived there, maybe it shows that they were idolaters or whatever, they were not so from. Um, okay, Rabbi Mitzvah. He saw that they had they were empty. They didn't even have any little moisture of mitzvah. They were completely empty of mitzvot. And again, I'm not saying that that justified his actions. The clearly is critical of his actions, but maybe makes it somewhat more tolerable. Um, okay, maybe they didn't have mitzvos, but maybe they would have given birth to children that would have, you know, had mitzvos. How, how can we really make our peace? I mean, it's a tragedy. You take one life, all the future generations. No, he saw that Never in any of the future generations would anything good come of them. You know, Gemara often says the exact opposite, right? Like, you know, even the uh, grandchildren, uh, you know, of Wakorach uh, or whatever, and Nebuchadnezzar, etc. So, um, um, but nevertheless, here it's trying to at least mitigate how bad it was what Elisha did. Okay. And two bears came out of the forest. And it burst through them, meaning, you know, and it, uh, it, it mauled 42 of the children. 
a Rav Shmuel, the debate of Rav Shmuel, Chadamar Neis, Chadamar Neis, Betoch Neis. One said it was just a straight miracle. The other said, no, it was a miracle on top of a miracle. Bandamar Neis, it was a miracle. Yarhave, there was a forest. Dubi Lohavu, but there wasn't any bears in the forest. So not only did he make the bears come out, bears appeared where never there had been bears before. That was the miracle. Bandamar Neis, Betoch Neis, one that said it was a miracle, built on a miracle. Lo Yarhave, the Lo Dubi Lohavu. There were neither, before he, you know, he called upon this miracle to happen, there was neither a forest nor bears. So first he made the forest, and then he made the bears in the forest to come out and to maul them. So now the Gemara says, You know, like, who needs the forest? Um, just make the bears, okay? If there was already a forest, fine. But, if, but according to the position that he did two miracles, why not just make the bears? So you could give the answer, well, he wanted to make it look more natural. So you needed to have a forest for the bears to come from. But that's not the answer the Gemara says. The Gemara says, um, to be easy, no. Because if there wouldn't be a forest then the bears would be afraid that they wouldn't attack because they, they would only attack humans if they had a place to run to to hide afterwards. So it's interesting. Even with the miracle of the forest and the bears, the bears are going to still act like normal bears. Okay. Um, now we're going to deal with the fact that the 42 of the children died. What, because of the 42 sacrifices that Balak did to curse, bring about a curse through Bilam on Israel, so, he, so that, that, you know, he's, he's seeing a correspondence of 42 and 42, so the fact that had enough impact, even though it didn't have the evil he wanted it to have, but, you know, that had enough impact that it caused these 42 deaths eventually to happen. Any is that really true? You should always do Torah mitzvahs even for not the right reason, because even for not the right reason, ultimately it'll come to become the right reason. For the, for the merit of the 42 sacrifices that Balak did, and that was for the sake of hurting Israel, eventually, you know, Rus comes as Moaviyat, so Rus came from, ba- from Balak, I mean, understood her to be a direct descendant of Balak. And ultimately, from Rus came David and came Shlomo. He brought a thousand sacrifices to God for the right reason. So you see, I mean, obviously, it's a little bit funny. You know, Balak, first of all, normally when we say do it Shalolish Shema, we say do it for maybe, you know, a self interested motive, not for an evil motive. Balak here did it for an evil motive, and ultimately it led to Lishma, not his Lishma, but ultimately, you know, somehow that merit brought about that his descendant did it Lishma. Anyway, says the Gemara, you see that the way this sacrifice worked is it brought about something good not that the efficacy that it had was actually the bad the lowly shema efficacy that well that's so so how does that fit with what you just said so the Gemara says um uh, I'm sorry. Rus was the daughter of Aglon, who was the son of Balak. So anyway, that's how Rus came from Balak and Shlomo came from Balak. So the Gemara says, It's true. The good did come out of it. That's the, that's the Lishma that came from the Shalom Lishma. But because his desire was evil, that also had an impact. And that also did bring about some evil. Okay. Now we're doubling back to when Elisha came to Yericho and he made the water better, which ultimately this story was the aftermath of. Behold, the uh, dwelling of the city is pleasant, as you can see, it's a lovely city. The only problem is that the waters are bitter, the end of the Basuk is, you know, and the, and Eretz Meshakelas, and the land causes people, you know, the women to have, to miscarry. That's it. Other than 
that, it's totally fine. So the Gemara asks, he say, the Gemara says, if the waters are bad, and the land causes miscarriage, what do you mean you see that it's a nice city? So, um, I'm a Rabbi Chanin, Chain Makom, it's nice, Chanin Chain, said Rabbi Chanin, the Chain Makom Al Yoshvav. You know what? Every city looks beautiful to its inhabitants. You're living there, you find its charms, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a, you know, desire, so it's like um, that, you know, you want to, you know, some subconsciously, you know, since you're here anyway, you know, you feel, there are things that are, you learn to really love it and to find it beautiful, even if from an outside perspective, there'd be a lot to criticize. Okay. So, Chein Makom Yoshvav. Yeah, so I'm Rabbi Yochanan, and now Rabbi Yochanan said, there are three things of charm, you know, which maybe is not like objectively beautiful, but it, it charms the person and it makes them feel positive about it. Okay, three things. The, uh, the uh, charm of a woman is on her husband, again, all from the man's perspective. So, you know, some outsider might say, I don't see what, you know, I mean, we can make it more balanced. They see in one another, but they, you know, they totally seem in love. They fight, you know, you're, you're so, and again, maybe there's some like cognitive dissonance here. You know, once you're married and you're in the marriage or whatever, you find, you know, that's one way of saying it. Or maybe perhaps people stay in the marriage because they stay in the city. It's to do a whole psychological analysis here. But anyway, when somebody's in that situation, they are, in their eyes, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you know, uh, you know, in their eyes, they it, it, the, the, it, they find favor with their situation. The favor, the, the charm of a kala is on her husband. Chain kala al baala. Chain mekach. Chain isha baala. Chain mek. I'm sorry. Chain makom al yoshvav. The charm of a place is on those who dwell there. Chain isha baala. The charm of a woman is on her. You know, is is, is on her husband. Chain mekach al And when you buy something, you know, you you know, you could think it's wonderful. Even again, if some outsider will say, I think you got a little ripped off or something. Okay. Tadar Rabbanana, Rabbi's talk. Shlosha chalain chalai Elisha. Elisha had three illnesses, you know, serious sicknesses. Um, one was a punishment for a charge for sicking the be, be, the bears on these children. The other that he pushed away Gechazi with both hands. Gechazi, who went ran after you know Naaman to uh, who was cured from his leprosy, and to, in order to receive some reward, and you know and, and, and Elisha curses him out. So he pushed him away with both hands, as opposed to giving him mustard, but then trying to bring him back. Um, and then the third. One ultimately was not, maybe not a punishment. It was just he, you know, he his 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 illness before he died. Okay, and how do we know he had three illnesses? We don't know that you know the the correspondence that the Gemara says. But how does Gemara learn out the idea that there were three? Um, the verse says, Elisha became sick, the illness in which he would die by. So the Gemara reads, there are three. Chala became sick, Chalyo, his sickness, the thing ultimately that would kill him, there were three times he became seriously ill. You always should uh, have, when you, know, you, when you have to give Musr and, you know, and criticize somebody, you should push him away with your left, but bring him close with your right. So you don't start by bringing them close. You know, you got to give the muster. But after you give the muster, you're drawing them back in should be stronger than you're pushing away. Okay. Um, and how do we know this? 
Um, not like, do not follow the bad example of Elisha, who pushed away Gehazi with both hands. Not like that pushed away one of his students with two hands. That's the printed Girsa. The actual Girsa is Yeshu Hanotsri. Print pushed away Jesus with two hands. And we'll see that the student he pushed away went ahead and worshipped the Vodisar and so on. The only problem, I mean, it was changed because we did not want the church to, you know, see this and, uh, and, uh, and uh, censor it or burn the Talmud, which has happened. Um, but, the, um, but it's also difficult to assume it means Jesus because Rabbi Yeshua ben Parche lived about 150 years before Jesus, um, although which does not, or maybe 100 years, excuse me, around 70 before the Kamen Hira. Anyway, which doesn't mean that the Gemara got the uh, history right. The Gemara might have actually thought it was Jesus, but historically it couldn't have been. Okay. Elisha Mahi. What's the story with Elisha and Gehazi? Tichsiv, the verse says, Vayomer Naaman, Yaman said, Ho'el, Kach Kikarim, okay, you know, once the Gehazi ran after him, then Naaman said, okay, fine, here, take, you know, these loaves now that you have asked for a, uh, you know, for some type of a compensation or of a reward. After Elisha had said him, do that, you know, Elisha had made the point that we do not take a reward here, you know, for this, for having cleared up the uh, leprosy. Okay, Vixiv, Vayomer Lav, Loli Bihalach, and then when Naaman um, came, when Gehazi came back and Elisha criticized him. And Elisha said, um, and Elisha said to him, um, My heart was not with you. I, was not, I did not approve, you know, when that man turned off from his chariot in order to greet you. Um, I'm sorry, skip this line. Um, is now really the time to accept to, to take these types of gifts, silver and uh, garments and 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 olives and and vineyards and 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 sheep and fl- and, and cattle and slaves and male and female slaves. Okay, so now the problem is that he only he didn't take all that stuff. So the Gemara says, I didn't really take all that stuff. If you you know you actually read the Basuk, the Basuk just says that he took uh, he took um, uh, silver and uh, and garments. He didn't take all that stuff. So um, so okay. So how do you explain why all of this was mentioned? No, because Elisha had been learning and presumably learning with Gehazi until that time. The halachas of the eight shratim, uh, like the eight rodents or whatever that caused Tum'ah. Um, okay, so these are eight types of, uh, you know, uh, things that he mentioned, the gold and the, uh, the silver and the clothes, etc. So he said, because of this sin, any reward that you had for the Torah you learned, now you will receive it. So, you know, maybe God now will give you uh, clothes and sheep and, cl- and cattle, etc. That'll be your reward, but you're not getting olam haba. Okay, but tsaras na'aman, back to the pasuk, tibak b'cha, v'zarecha le'olam. And the leprosy of the tsaras of na'aman, because yeah, that I cleared up and now you wanted to take this reward, now it should cleave to you and to your children for forever. Okay, now that we had mentioned him and his children are going to have tsaras, we're going to use it, which the murder does sometimes, to try to explain some, like, tie, tie pieces of together in various stories. So now we have a story from that time. There were four people who, were, who had tsarat who were by the gate, right? And this was when, you know, then they ran to the, uh, to, 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 to the, to the besieging uh, army and so on, and God had uh, scared away the whole army, etc., etc. Okay, Okay. Who are the Mitzrayim? Well, we already know Gehazi and his children were Mitzrayim, so that must be Gehazi and his three children. Okay. Now we're going to talk about 
trying about this idea that he pushed him away with both hands. So he saw he pushed him away. He only gave him very harsh musr, nothing positive. Now the Gemara is going to try to sort of also like have a poignant aftermath to this. The later Pasuk says Elisha went to Damascus. Why did he go? So, um, he went to get Gehazi to come back to do, you know, in Tshuva. Uh, finally, he was having some remorse, Elisha. Um, and he didn't, uh, he refused to come back with him. He, so Elisha said, please. Now, the Chazur here doesn't just mean physically come back, it also means like do Tshuva. Like he begged him. So Gehazi said to him, No, you've taught me. Anybody that sinned and caused others to sin, he does not. Not get the wherewithal to do tshuva, which doesn't mean it's impossible, but means it's like you know, it's like uh, it's like uh, it's not going it, it, practically. It's going to be extremely difficult. It's not going to be, at, at, and therefore he chose to read that as like you know, like it's also one wonders if this teaching is part of the pushing away with two hands, you know, because the, the Gemara teaches this point. But is this a wise thing to teach? Because it just slams the door in front of people. Okay, you've already taught me. It's not going to help, so I'm not even going to try. Okay, my um, Avid. Now, where did he make other? people said that, we, that the Gemara can sort of say this about him. So, uh, you know, Yeravam ben Vat made these two uh, golden calves um, and uh, set them up, you know, to be the competing uh, uh, kingship in, um, um, in, um, in uh, the tribes, of the, 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 other, the other ten tribes. So he went ahead and to give them power, he basically put these big magnets and, you know, and with the opposite poles, or with the same poles rather, anyway, and it caused them to be suspended in midair and that made people think that they were real gods. So I don't know why we're saying that he did this, but once we say that this dynamic was that he said he caused others to sin, now we're attributing this to gay chazi. Okay, that's a real hechtia sarabim, which maybe also shows you what happens. You know, you do a tiny little sin, a tiny little thing wrong, you get pushed away, you really become lahachis, and like, you know, not only are you going to like leave, you're going to do avodazar, you're going to cause other people to do avodazar. It really shows you the consequence of what it means to push people away and to not work to bring them back and also to, like, slam the door with statements like, uh, nobody will be able to tshuva. Okay, so, um, okay. Some say, that he actually wrote God's name, engraved it on the mouth of these, uh, of these golden calves. And, and not, the, it wasn't suspended in midair, it was maybe even worse, because it magically was saying, I am the Lord your God, and I have taken you out of Egypt. You should have no other gods before me. I mean, oh my God, think about the power that has to mislead people. Okay. Um, okay. And some say, and this is not like a little bit parallel, you know, Elisha was doche Gehazi with two hands. The way that Gehazi himself had sinned uh, prior to being driven away um, was that he pushed rabbis away from Elisha. He wanted like a monopoly on Elisha or he didn't want, you know, he only wanted a very small number of, of disciples in Elisha's presence. So he kept people away from him. How do we know this? Because it says after Gehazi was pushed away, the sons of the Nevi'im, meaning the people that were like studying, the interns, the Nevi'im said to Elisha, that there, it's too crowded here. There are too many of the of these, uh, you know, of, of, of these acolytes, that there are too many of these uh, of these people trying to be Nevi'im. So why was it so crowded? It was crowded because Gehazi wasn't there anymore, so he wasn't there, away, there to be pushing them away. Michlal from this, you can infer that until this time, lo it was not crowded. Okay, so that's the story about Elisha and Gehazi. Now, Yeshua ben Prachya, my what was the story about Yeshua ben Prachya? 
When Yanai the king was killing out all of the Pharisees, all of the rabbis, Shimon ben Shetach at Minu Achase. So Shimon ben Shetach's sister, uh, um, um, who uh, you know, hit him, who was married to, to Yad, I hit him. Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachya, Azil, now that was just, that's how Shimon ben Shetach was protected. Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachya, who was the Nasi, um, he went, um, uh, what do you call it? He went, and Azil Arak Alexandria Shemitraim. He went and he ran away to Alexandria in Egypt. Shama, then when things calmed down, Shavach Shimon ben Shetach. So Shimon ben Shetach sent a message to Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachya. For here, from me, Jerusalem, the holy city, sending a message to you, Egypt. My sister, Alexandria, my sister. My husband is dwelling in your midst. Because you know, because you, because um, Yoshua ben Prachi was the uh, nasi, um, so the ani was show me man. I here I am desolate. So it was like a nice little poetic message. When it was also coded for some reason, things were totally peaceful. Anyway, sh- um, anyway, so Yoshua ben Karcha got the point. Now I see now it's peaceful. So he decided to head back to Yerushalayim. He also, as he went on his way back, he came to an inn. Come, come, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the woman who was the head of the inn, um, uh, you know, stood before him and showed him great honor. Shapir Avdile, uh, and, you know, Treated him very with a lot of respect, very properly. Shabir Avid the Yikratuva with 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 great respect, with great honor. And so Yosheb Ben Prachia was uh, praising her. How, how wonderful, how beautiful this is, meaning how beautiful she is in terms of her actions. You know, what an amazing, uh, what an amazing uh, proprietess. Um, so one of his students, and actually, the guy says, you know, Yeshu Hanotri said to him, Rebbe, ain't that What do you mean she's so, you know, she's so amazing? Her eyes are, are round. They're not, are, she doesn't have attractive eyes. So he thought, you know, he interpreted it as he was talking about her appearances, not, a, not about her midos. So, Amalei, Russia. So Shubin Prakhi said, Russia. You know, call him immediately, you call him a Russia. That's what you're thinking about. You know, not about the way she's treating us. You're thinking about her, her looks. Um, uh, you took out 400 shofarot, you know, which you blow when you put somebody in cherim and shamte, and he put him under the ban. Um, so then, came back to him day after day after day trying to be, you know, re-accepted by him. Um, then one day, Yosheb ben Prachi was saying Kriyat Shema and um, and he came to him, um, uh, Yeshu, and wanted again to try to be accepted by him. That day, he had a change of heart and he was actually thinking, you know what, maybe I sh- uh, he was going to re-accept him. He was going to welcome him back. Like he motioned with his hands, but that motion was was not clear what it meant, and Yeshua interpreted it. So he was saying, "Get out of here!" You know, he was saying, "Come here," and he was saying, reading it as "Get out of here." Um, again, we have the hands pushing away with two hands—a very sort of literal, you know, pushing type of an image here, um, you know, or at least with the hands gesturing away. Okay. Um, so he erected a stone, Paucha, and he worshipped it. He worshipped Avodah Zarah. So then Yosheb ben Prachia came to him and said, Come to Tuva. 
No, this is my tradition that I have. Many but you sin so causes others to sin. Ain't must speak me Does not you know allow others to do uh, you know it's not giving him the opportunity to do tshuva. Now it doesn't say here how he causes others to sin. Mars assuming it means you know Yeshua no tree, so maybe that sort of goes without saying. You know you know let all you know let people astray to believe in his you know in in his heresy. Okay. Um, now Damar Mar. So now um, oh I'm sorry. Up the head, it actually does say how here how he how he led others to sin. Um, as we taught, there you go. He did witchcraft and he seduced, meaning to Avodah and he pushed and he caused Israel to sin. So with his heresy, and again, this is why it does seem it, it's talking, uh, you know, the Gemara just has the dates wrong. People try to claim, oh, can't be real Yeshu because the dates are wrong. Okay, but it calls him Yeshu Anotri, and it says this at the end. Anyway, so look, you know, he created this whole heresy, and he caused all these others to sin, and therefore he was gone, and he felt he had, when finally the desire was to bring him back, it was too late. Now that we have talked about pushing away with the left and drawing close with the, hand, with the right when somebody deserves some criticism. Now we're sort of saying other types of like balances a person has to do in his life. So Yates, again, talking very much from the man's perspective, the desire for sex, you know, you should not try to be an, an ascetic. Judaism doesn't believe in that, but you shouldn't be running after, you know, sexual pleasure all the time. So you should try to moderate, push away with the left, but draw close with the right. Ultimately embrace, and that's really important. I mean, that's really very, I mean, distinctive about Judaism, you know, from religion. The Embracing of it is more powerful than the moderating of it. Um, um, and um, Tinoch is, you know, speaking to men, I guess, for you that the women will spend the time with the kids. So, uh, you know, men should be spending time, I don't know, in with their Torah or whatever. So, and you could, you know, have a lot of fun with your kids or whatever. So, and you get carried away. So, okay, moderate. Uh, but ultimately, again, the uh, right hand is drawing close. Okay. Um, uh, where were we? Um, and Isha, um, again, how exactly Isha is different than the idea of Yetzer, um, when you talk about sex, maybe this just means time a man spends with his wife. So, very, very interesting, you know, from a very sort of male-dominated type, uh, man's perspective, you know, and so on, male-dominated society. Okay, so now we go on to the next Mishnah. Now that we're in the middle of the discussion of Egla Arufa. Egla um, um, if the if the uh, murderer was found before the neck was broken, um, then it does not have the status of Egla Rufa, and it can go back and you can use it and put it back in the flock. Now, Rashi points out that actually there's an opinion in that when it goes down into the wadi, even before the neck is broken, it becomes forbidden. This position disagrees with it. Okay. Once its neck is broken, it's buried in its place, and it still remains forbidden in benefit, even after the murderer was found. Why? Because it was coming because of the doubt you didn't know, couldn't find the murderer. So it served its function. It achieved atonement for the land, not for the murderer, but, you know, for the land and somehow for the guilt that the people had. It achieved that atonement until that punishment could be exacted on the murderer. So, so, it did the atonement it was supposed to do in that te- period of doubt when you couldn't find it. It achieved its function, and therefore, even though the murderer is found, it does not retroactively mean that this was did not do anything. No, this actually did something. It achieved the atonement, you know, that was needed at that time. 
Okay. Now, this is exactly the same scenario we were just talking about, but we're just sort of articulating it and by starting with the fact that it was broken. First, you did the Egla Rufa, now you have found the murderer. Um, so, so, okay, we've discussed already the status of the Egla, but now we're going to say something else. In case you had any doubts, um, now you're going to kill the murderer. And you know who the murderer was. He doesn't get off because you did this ritual of the Egla Rufa. One said, I saw the guy who killed him. So even though that's not enough to convict the person, if you just had one person saying, I saw the guy, then it's then the Pesach says, you do the Egla Rufa when lo no you don't know. If you know, even somewhat know, because one person says, this should remind you all of what we said about also by the Sota, by the case of the Sota, one person says, I saw her commit adultery, you don't make her drink the water. You know, the Torah believed Eid Echad by the Sota, believed Eid Echad by the Egla Rufa, not believed to the point that you would convict or act on it in a basin, but believed that you don't go through with this now ritual that is because of the doubt. There's obviously a fascinating parallel here between the Egla Rufa and the Sota. So if one person says, so if the, but it's one against one though, they neutralize one another and you go through with the process as you normally would. Um, so Eid Echad Omer Re'iti, Re'echad Omer Re'iti, you didn't see Isha Omer Re'iti, once a woman says, I saw Vishomeris Lorita, and a woman says, You didn't. How you orphan? Then they neutralize, and you go like you normally would do, you would break the neck. But if it was just one that says, I saw, and nobody contradicted, you would not. One says, I saw Vishnaimomim Lorita, two said, You did not. How you orphan? You would break the neck. I mean, that's sort of obvious based on what we just said a minute ago. Shnaimomim Rainu, two says, We saw the Echadomer Loritem, you did not see. Loa, you orphan, you wouldn't, because now you have two that says, We saw. So, I mean, um, so they beat out against the one. And therefore, um, it, they don't neutralize one another. And you have the weight that says that it's, that, you, that there was a murderer. And there, you know, the murder was known, even if maybe they can't identify him, but they at least saw the event happen. We'll see about that in the Gemara. And therefore, you do not go through with the ritual. Okay. Um... Uh, uh, when the murderers increased in Israel, but la Egla Rufa, they stopped doing Egla Rufa because you know Egla Rufa was, um, you know, this basically the point was Egla Rufa reflected a time when we were total, when basically we're in control, and this was an aberration, and we were dealing with the guilt of not having, you know, of, of letting it get to this point when the whole, when, when there was just murder all over the land, it was seen to be meaningless, you know, lacking meaning to try to do this ritual. Um, we'll see more about this in the Gemara. Mi Shabbat Eliezer ben Denai, Denai, when Eliezer ben Denai came around, V'tchina ben Prisha, his name was Tchina ben Prisha, Chazru Likwoso ben Aratzchan, and he was then called the son of the murderer. Okay, so there was a lot of, and this might have to very much do with the whole period, you know, in the end of the Baichani period about the um, about the uh, the zealots and about the murdering one another and so on around the issue, around those issues. Okay, Mi Menafim, once the adulterers became many, Pasco you stopped using the soto water because the soto water is only when the a person, meaning the men now we're talking about, that they became, you know, adult, adult, regular adulterers. So uh, then the water stopped uh, checking the wives once the men themselves were sinning. So the whole thing was seen to be meaningless, so they stopped doing it. Rabbi Yonah Menzaki, he said, it was Rabbi Yonah Menzaki who said we should stop bothering with the water. I will no longer visit upon your daughters because... 
when they you know sort of uh, fornicate. And because of your uh, daughter-in-laws when they um, uh, commit adultery. Um, okay. When these two rabbis died and they were the very very early in the uh, in the in the period of the Prushim, you know, if you read Pirkei Avos, they were right at the beginning. And when they died, Badu Heshkalot, the Heshkalot, which the Gemara will say means like the you know rabbis that are like were totally complete, had all the wisdom, all of the knowledge, and you know in them that was Heshkalot literally means like a cluster of grapes that stopped, meaning in you know the, the the future generations were not at the same level of perfection, and that's why then there started developing debates because only you know there are very small number of debates earlier on, and then it got great, greater and raider because the tradition was you know well there are different ways to tell this but anyway but uh, but the tradition was broken and there was therefore people were not as you know, fully knowledgeable as they were in the past. Okay. Okay. Uh, there is, you know, there are no longer the, uh, whatever, you know, the, uh, the, the clusters to eat. Okay. Yochanan Kohen Gadol stopped people from doing, the Torah says, you know, every three years, you say, I have gotten rid of the Maaser from the house. We'll see in the Gemara why he stopped that. And he also uh, caused an end to the Orin and the Nokfim, we will see what that means in the Gemara. Until his day, you would hear the uh, banging of the uh, of the hammer of the you know of the um, anvil in Jerusalem um, when the, you know in sort of the metal workers um, because the smelters uh, and this means during Cholamoi they were allowed to do it because if they wouldn't do it it would be davar ha'avad it's the thing of serious loss but because it was so noisy and everybody heard all this work being done on Cholamoi and you know it, it undermined the sense that you're not supposed to do work on Cholamoi so he said you have to stop doing that. You do not have to ask people about about Demai because we'll see he instituted taking trumas and rices from Demai. Okay. So let's take a look. Um... Uh, okay. So, so, how do you know if you did the ritual of Egla roof and then you found the murderer that it doesn't he doesn't get off the hook? Um, um, because the land will not be atoned without the blood of the one who did the murder, and therefore, in the end, the Egla Rufa holds you for the time being, but ultimately, you need the blood of the murderer if you can ever find it. Okay. So now the Gemara is saying there's a problem that this, that this sort of so the first thing that sounds is like only because it's one and one they neutralize. But if only one said unchallenged that I saw who the that you know the murder occur, then you would not go through with the process. So that's again like the sota. If you have one witness that says I saw it happen, you don't go through with the ritual. Where do you know this from? You don't know who who killed this guy. If it is known. If it's known in any way, meaning not enough to prosecute in court, but it's known in any way, then you would not go through with this ritual. And that's how you know one aid is believed to say it to the point that you don't go through with the ritual. How do you know even if they saw it without knowing who the murderer was, um, that that would be sufficient to say that you would not go through with the process. Because they say, our eyes didn't see it. So, and now they've seen it. So now it is interesting. Let's say somebody who isn't a Sanhedrin saw, but didn't identify. Because by the Sanhedrin, they say, our eyes didn't see. By I, the other puzzle said, it was not known who did it, me. So maybe seeing it isn't enough unless somebody claims that they know who did it. Okay, anyway. Um, now the Gemara says like this. Um... 
Now, now, wait a minute. We got a question, though. Okay, now we said one is believed. So then, how come one and one neutralizes? The Hamar Ula. Now, this is going to be exact word for word of Gemara we did before by the Eid Echad of Asota. Didn't Ula teach that if the Torah believed the one Eid about the Eglar Roof or about the Sota, it has it's fully he's fully believed again not to prosecute, but in terms of this issue of not going through with the ritual. So if that's true, and the one is like it counts like two, and now you uh, you know. Then, then another aide afterwards can't neutralize him because the other aide doesn't have special believability. Only the aide who says that they saw has special believability. So, um, so um, okay, he switched the gears in the Mishnah. And the, the, he, you know, his gears in the Mishnah is, is that if it's one against one, they wouldn't, they would stop the ritual. The one who said he saw, he has greater weight, greater believability. The one who contradicts him does not neutralize him, completely changes the Psak in the Mishnah. And therefore, one against one, you believe the one who said he saw, and you do not go through with the process. Okay, so they switch the gears. Rebchia says, no, come on. The, the Mishnah is like it says. One against one neutralizes. So Rebchia Kasha Ula, but then what does Rabbi Chia do with Ula? Because we assume Ula's ruling is one that everybody would agree with. So the Gemara says, Lokash, it's not difficult. There's a difference between whether they came at the same time or sequentially. When they came at the same time, in an earlier place, Rashi says it means Tokade Dibor, but Tosu says no, it just means that they haven't ruled yet on the first witness. One witness says, says I saw. And then before they decided to make some ruling, he said, Oh, you saw, we're not going to do the Egla Rufa. It was no so formal acceptance of his. Another one came and said, No, 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 you didn't see, you were with me. Okay, so in that case, you can neutralize. When they're coming, that's what's considered to be the same time. Before the first one got accepted and sort of authorized, then they neutralize. When Ula said the first one, you know, establishes it and cannot be overrun, that's when the first one came, you know, and was already accepted. Okay, Tanan. Now let's try to figure out the Mishnah because the Mishnah sort of confuses because it gives sort of, uh, you know, talks in uh, both extremes. One says, I saw, and two says, you didn't. How you orphan? In that case, you would go through with it. The two would neutralize. So the Gemara says, That sounds like one against one. It wouldn't neutralize. That's a contradiction of Rebbe because he says one and one would neutralize, assuming at the same time. So the Gemara says, No. The Mishnah is difficult because it gives both cases of two and one in both extremes, and it doesn't make it clear what the case of one and one is in the middle. Look at the end. Two says we saw, and one says you didn't see. So there, so because the two beat out the one, and they said we saw, you would not do it. So that suggests that suggests. If it was one and one, that uh, that you um, that you would go through, that it would neutralize. So now you got a problem. The first part of the mission sounds like if it's two and one in one direction, it's the problem. But one and one, you know, uh, you know, doesn't neutralize. And the other way, the mission sounds the opposite. You know, that one and one does neutralize. So which way are you going to go? So the Mishnah really, um, you have to understand, is not talk. It's talking about people that are puzzle edus. Like Reb Damar who says, Anytime the Torah believed one witness, it does not have the weight of a formal two witnesses. Even though one is like two when it's believed, it's not with the formality of two witnesses. The formality of two witnesses is once you have two, two counts like a hundred. Here in the end, you know, it is just ultimately going to be a numbers game. 
Okay, he said. Um, uh, okay, and therefore, if you have one man that says, I saw who killed, and two women say you don't, since one man is not two witnesses, he's only one witness, even though he's a kosher witness and he's a man, two, even apostle to women, still beat out one man and they neutralize him. So the reason the Mishnah was saying two against one neutralize is not to say that one against one wouldn't neutralize, but it's to tell you the Chiddush that, you know, that even psule edus, even, you know, two, you know, women will neutralize one man. Okay? The Igad Ami, and some say, Actually not, that's not true. If the first witness that testified was a man and he said, I saw, and the Torah gives special believability to say you saw, then that man counts like two real halachic witnesses. And two kosher witnesses would, you know, would neutralize. But women would not neutralize that. The hacha, so, how do you explain the two neutralizing the one in the Mishnah? The hacha, my skin, what are we talking about? That it's all puzzle witnesses. One woman against two witnesses in both ways. So basically what we're saying is like this. The Mishnah is complicated because the Mishnah says one against one neutralizes. At least that's our gear. So although, you know, uh, the Gemara, like, you know, you know, rereads it. Shmuel rereads it. But then it says two against one, the two wins. One against, you know, and then another two against one, the other two wins. And it leaves us confusing what's the one against one. Why do you have to say two against one in both directions? Like, you know, um, so it's a very confusing Mishnah about what is the standard case about one against one. Does it neutralize or not? And the Gemara said the case is about two against one are cases to tell you a chiddish about puzzle witnesses. Two women neutralize one, either what, even one man, um, according to one read, or, okay, a one woman, not one man, that would be different. But either way, the point is not to get at the issue of one man against one man or say something of that nature. It's to tell you a halacha that psule edus, you know, you know, in this case, they count two against one. Okay, so it says like this. Um, well, okay. Okay. And here's what Reb says. When the Torah believes one witness, go by the majority numbers when you're dealing with psule edus. Two women against one woman. It's like two men against one man. Because as long as they're all pasul or they're all kasher, the numbers went out. Or two wins out against one. But it is true, two women against one man. That would be considered to be not winning out. And that would just be like one against one. And if the one man said he saw, then because the one man has special believability, he would win. So now, why do I need to tell me Go by the two, whether the two are saying they saw or the two are saying they didn't see. Maybe you would just listen to the two to be strict. You know, let's say not to do the uh, the breaking of the neck. Avalakula to be lenient. Low kamash that you would. So this al gemara is really identical to the gemara we did about uh, two weeks ago on this topic. And in the end of the day, the point, the the takeaway point is that. When one witness says they saw, whether it's the adultery or the aglarufa, that witness is believed, and you do not go ahead and do it. Um, and if that witness is accept, uh, it's accepted first, then certainly one witness that come after cannot neutralize. Can two witnesses come after and neutralize? It depends. Um, if it's... Um, one man, then two men can neutralize. If it's one woman, then two women can neutralize. If it is one man against two women who come later, then that is, depends on the different readings of Reb Nechemia. Okay, we will stop here.